Hello and welcome to another episode of our podcast from the Blue Earth Summit, a movement and community driving positive action for our natural world. In this series, we'll bring you some of the highlight talks and conversations from our first summit in Bristol in October 2021. In this episode, ditching the rhetoric when purpose becomes product. You may have noticed that there's been a huge transition over the last decade or so towards purpose. As consumers, we'd like to make better choices. However, there's a divide between those choices we would like to make and those we actually make. We all face a situation where our habits, retail or otherwise, are in direct opposition to the balance our planet requires. Could the products and services we consume be doing a better job of helping us make the right choices? Well, we put together the perfect panel to answer that question and how we go about confronting that dichotomy. Presenting their research and talking about their experiences, Lucy Siegel was joined by Hetty Key, founder of the independent research company Women in Adventure, and Emma Crome, award-winning filmmaker and producer at Cold House Collective. And to get the business and marketing angle, Lucy welcomed Jack Samler, general manager at micro-mobility company Voy Technology, and Dan McCauley, founder and CEO of sports marketing consultancy Brandwave Marketing. Hetty and Emma have been working together on a research campaign with um, Granger's, the outdoor brand. Hetty, would you tell us about the scope of the research and a little bit of your avenues of inquiry? So um, the Wear and Care Survey essentially wanted to look at how, as outdoor users, we look after our clothing and equipment, and also at what stage we think it's maybe completely done for, and what we do with it when we throw it away. Alongside that, we really wanted to look at people's value on sustainability, how important they thought that was, and then see how that translated into action. Um, also comparing the outdoor user to um, statistics within the fashion industry. So that was absolutely fascinating. And I think what made this unique was the collaboration with Emma, um, coming at this from a kind of data and creative point of view. Because um, Emma, you, you essentially brought me in on this project to start. Yeah, that's right. So um, Grange has actually came to Cold House um, and wanted us to create a campaign around their eco-credentials, but they weren't exactly sure what they were wanted to do. Uh, so I concepted a few ideas and I was really inspired by the work that Hetty had done um, with Women in Adventure, the previous research that she'd worked on. Um, and also the photography of Anton Repress, who, um, a French photographer, he collected his um, domestic waste over the period of four years. So this was inspired by Antoine, and he collected his waste over um, the period of four years and then took these amazing images of people sat in the home, like in the living room, in the bathroom, surrounded by waste that had been accumulated over that period of time. And I love the concept, um, and uh, I wanted to create something that was going to be engaging and get people's eyes on some data and research. So I came up with the idea for the Wear and Care campaign and brought Hetty on board to do the research. Okay, and just explain, just in case people don't know, exactly what Cold House Collective is. Uh, Cold House Collective is a, a creative agency film production company based in the Peak District. Uh, so I'm one of the directors and we work on branded content, uh, uh, creating film, photography, um, and we specialise in documentary film, but we also do other, other things as well, some slightly more left field work like this photography. You do loads of stuff. And is this a usual starting off point for you? How often would you um, work with somebody like Hetty and, and um, 
commission data, essentially, or try and find out the data? Well, this is the first time we've done that as, um, as a business. So, and that was part of the, the reasoning, was that we've worked on so many brand campaigns. We've created so many uh, documentaries and sort of done a lot of product photography over the years that I really wanted to do something different and something that was research-based and that could potentially point people towards ways of taking action and ways of you know, reducing their, their carbon footprint and you know, essentially reducing consumption. So it was quite a, a slightly braver way of, of doing a, a marketing campaign um, with, yes, a natural, it's grounded in, in research and stats, but still with bringing our expertise and creativity to try and get eyes on the content and eyes on, on the results. But you had some, you've got some pretty ambitious objectives. So you're looking at impact, but you're also looking at trying to reduce consumerism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I think, um, you know, for Granger's, um, they had quite a wide remit. You know, they wanted to champion um, their, you know, their product, but they wanted to do it um, in a way that was going to show off the benefits of, of aftercare. So if you wash and reproof and repair, hopefully that can help to, to reduce consumption. Um, so it was, yeah, a, a fairly considered way of, of kind of bringing in discussion about consumption and just how much we should or shouldn't be consuming. So do they have a big aftercare part of their business? So, so repair they, and stuff? Yeah, they like make that. our Grangers make aftercare products. So they make wash, um, you know, cleaning products and reproofing products. So it is their business. That is their business. Exactly. Yeah, okay, yeah. great. Um, shall we come back and just find let's let's um, see what you found out? I mean that would be a good idea. Yes. So essentially one thing we found out, people who took our survey were people that go outside regularly and they have participated for a number of years, which is fantastic because it means they, they have clothing and equipment and they've worn it lots. What we found is that people have so many of the same thing, in particular sports tops. I think it was over 50% have more than 10 in their wardrobe. But we looked at down jackets, waterproof, hiking boots. Everyone has multiple items and they use it for the same thing. Compared to fashion, which generally reasons for um, stopping wearing something was it doesn't fit or I don't like it anymore. The reason within these users for stopping wearing something was more functional or damaged base. However, one thing that was really apparent was a lack of knowledge. For example, with waterproofs, the most common reason to stopping wearing it was because they were getting wet. But actually, are the st- you know, one thing we wanted to look at with this is are the steps we can take to maybe maintain or, or improve that performance. And that was because the... the, the- quality deteriorated not because it didn't have a hood up or something sometimes it was complete lack of knowledge um alongside an actual legitimate i've worn it for a certain number of years something i found fascinating that came out of the survey was the lifespan so compared to um waste and resources action program the average lifespan of clothing within the uk is 3.3 years the average lifespan of clothing within this survey was 5.25 years the clothing is lasting longer. However, when we then compared how people are getting rid of their clothing, outdoor users in this survey were more likely to throw it away at the end. So I think, I think it threw up some really interesting discussions about the value of sustainability, which clearly everyone within the survey said they valued sustainability. Um, I think it was 70% said that it was very or extremely important. But within that, out of those people who said it was very or extremely important, one in two were throwing away their shoes at the end. So 
Yeah, okay. I mean, wow. <laughs> Thank you. Let, can we come back to a, a bit more of that in a second? I want to bring Dan into two. Could you explain what's going on, please? Because, you know, people are saying sustainability is super important and they're throwing away their shoes. Um, could you ca cast some light on what is happening? Um, I think that's a very broad question. It is. They're all going to be broad questions. <laughs> and... Um, I certainly can't pretend to have all the answers to that. Um, I think what, what I do know is that um, my background is more sort of motivational psychology and um, biobehavior. And I think there's been a, a huge transition over the sort of the last decade or so in, in, in terms of purpose and, and that being really important. Um, and I think... As humans, we, we think that um, we, we are logical creatures and we make um, you know, logical decisions, but all the research shows quite the opposite, that in fact, you know, we buy with our hearts before we buy with our heads. And you know, most of the research I've read says we buy sort of 80% for emotional reasons and, and only 20% for rational reasons. And even in sort of um, high involvement, expensive technical um, purchases like cars, for example, um, we, we think that we're making, you know, because it's got great safety features or whatever, but we're not. We're, we are buying, um, we are buying because we have a set of uh, values, because we have a sort of self-identity and, and we're aligning with whatever brand that is that have sort of defined and articulated their values and we're saying, well, that's kind of where I want to be. So the sustainability question, um, a, a lot of brands are sort of articulating their purpose and a lot of a lot of people are sort of saying, I, I align with that, but th there's a thing that I refer to as, as brand transcendence. And sometimes that's just kind of a purpose statement and it sits in a document and goes in a drawer for a company and it never really transcends the whole company. And the same thing for consumers. You know, they say, look, I'm these set of values, but they can't see it all the way through. And I, I think we're kind of in, in, in a transition phase on that. And is the transition phase one in which you could see these values, that gap that you talk about? Because I come across it a lot. There's a, there's, a, there's a gap between people's intentions and what they say they're going to do and sometimes how they respond to surveys and questions and what they actually do. We see it with energy. We see it with fast fashion consumption, let me tell you. We see it with everything. Um, in this transition phase, do you see that gap will narrow and do you see that those things that are getting put in a drawer... <laughs> the rhetoric, if you like, will they be taken out of the drawer and dusted off? So is, is that what that transition will do? I'll, I'll try and answer that on two levels, one, one for the brands and one for the consumers. I think the change that we've seen in, I guess what you could call the digital age that we're in now, is substantiation. Um, when I was a kid, um, as a brand or as a consumer, you could really say anything. You know, these are the healthiest cigarettes for athletes or, or whatever it is. And How old are you? I am uh, nearly 43 <laughs> next week, I think. Um, and I think to be disingenuous now as a brand in, in the digital age, if, if you make statements, um, that could be fact-checked very quickly. There's blogs, um, there's transparency reports now, which are becoming so important you know, people are going to check that really quickly and, and you're, going to get, you're going to get called out. And, and I've seen it and I'm sure we all have recently. And the same thing with, um, with, with consumers. It's, it's, it, there's a want to be authentic, but there's, a, there's also a need to be authentic. You know, if, if you say you're this and that, people are going to realise pretty quickly um, with things like social media. 
um, whether or not you're, sort of, you're backing up your, uh, your claims. So is it important to do this kind of, kind of data research and to have these facts and figures to show that, you have, that, you, that you, your claims are not coming from anywhere? Ne- never more so. Yeah, I think... <laughs> That's good to hear. <laughs> I give the opposite answer. That could have been really awkward. <laughs> no, I, I, I think not only is it important to, to have your facts and figures, but it's also third-party substantiation, because no matter how well you have your new product development or your R&D departments, people are always a little bit dubious of brands, you know, making their claims. But if you have a, a respected third party, getting that insight, not only is it important, but great products, great campaigns, great communities are based on great insights. And if you're making insight-based decisions, be they qualitative or quantitative, you're just going to have a better business. Okay, thank you. Did you want to come back before we go to Jack? I think something else I was going to add is that data gives the potential to the gap between consumer and the brand. It closes out a little bit more because, for example, in this, we learned that one of the reasons that people throw stuff away or very commonly keep it in a cupboard and forget about it was because of a lack of knowledge of what to do with it. So I mentioned hiking boots and footwear. The biggest kind of side comment to that was, but what do I do with it? I I don't know what to do with it. I want to. So I think that the value of data as well there is to be able to close that gap and tell brands, this is where the knowledge gap is. So then it can be a collaborative effort to try to close that. I think that's also quite an important element. Okay, very good. And we'll come back to that. And I'd also like to come back to talking about transparency reports as well in a second, if that's okay. Jack, hello over there. How are you? (laughs) Um, Let's hear about things from your perspective and um, especially in your industry and and about mobility. How do you um, approach this conversation? Your product has a lot of purpose, not least getting from A to B, which is a very pure purpose. Um, uh, what else are you able to um, to load onto that? Ooh, load onto that. Yeah, that sounds a, a bit pejorative, and I don't mean um, it. Well, first of all, I'm feeling quite quite smug because I think Emma mentioned was it 3.3 years was the average fashion. Yeah, 3.3. These are around nine years. These trousers, <laughs> they got holes in, but still. Um, so, uh, in terms of Voy, so for those who don't know, Voy uh, is an e-scooter company. Um, so we provide electric vehicles, both scooters and bikes, uh, to cities and towns around Europe um, on, as part of a shared uh, hop-on, hop-off rental scheme. Um, and I think something that's coming out of this conversation, which is really interesting, is as, as, as a few people have said, this gap between intentions and mm-hmm. what consumers—you don't like that word—you said earlier, citizens. Um, want yeah. and and think they want versus the actions they take, um, and so I think that's where companies like Voy come in. Um, in that, you know, we we take away the the difficulty in in translating what people want to do with what they actually do by providing a service that ultimately is solving both things. It's good for the environment, but it's also really easy and has really low barriers to entry to to to, to use as a consumer. Um, so, so I think the, the responsibility of commercial operators now, and we have a great opportunity to do this, is, is to align commercial imperatives and commercial incentives with public service outcomes. Whether those public service outcomes are reducing uh, carbon emissions, whether they are changing consumer habits, uh, whether they are collaborating with other, other public, public service providers, whatever it may be. Um, and I think 
rewind 20 years ago, that was a very difficult thing to do because ultimately the climate crisis wasn't the top of the agenda. Um, it was a, sadly, probably a, a niche or, or at least a, a secondary consideration, generally speaking, which meant that you know, public markets weren't valuing it, which meant that it was difficult for commercial players to take action on it and shareholders to support that action. Whereas now, we're in this incredible position where commercial and public service alignment is a real possibility. And I find that super exciting. And we're seeing, seeing that play out with VOI. So some of your, so it strikes me that obviously when a consumer or citizen, I think we had that conversation before we came on stage. So I should just say, I don't, I try not to call people consumers, humans consumers, because I think we are citizens with agency and I find consumer quite reductive. But if all of this takes off and, every, and everything's got a purpose, then I won't have to be quite so nervous about using it, I guess. But so when people are using your products, they are coming to it with um, a clear intention and they will follow through. They're not going to get there and pretend that they used an e-scooter or they, they say they really want to use it and then not use it. So it's, in a, it's a slightly different framing. Where if your, challenge, if your challenges are not with the citizen consumer, where are your challenges? So where do you have to sort of push? Is it all legislative and public opinion? Yeah, so, so first of all, on your first point, I think the key is... There is, there, is no, there is no gap between intention and, and action. Yeah. And you don't actually, as a consumer, have to even be thinking about the environment if you've got a product that you can use yeah. that is so easy and so seamless. It's, it's a win-win for everyone. So I, I won't pretend that every single one of Voy's consumers is consciously thinking about carbon reduction yeah. um, when they use one of our scooters. But I will say, and we, and we have third-party um, uh, evidence to showcase the difference between using a car and using an e-scooter or e-bike in terms of carbon emissions and, and how we're um, about 15% per mile of cars versus e-scooters in terms of the emissions we release. So it, like, the point I'm making, I guess, is that we, there, there is no argument you have to win to win the heart's mind's ideology of a consumer. You just make it really easy and everything else follows. Um, on, your, on your second point... Uh, yeah, you point towards kind of the collaboration required with governments to get things like transport changed and transport ecosystems changed and within that um, introduce new forms of transport like e-scooters and e-bikes into the transport mix. Now, this is crucial. We, we cannot do this as a commercial operator on our own or even as users of our service on our own. We need government investment. Right now, for, for, for reference, for those that don't know, we're, we're undertaking... Um, uh, a year long, it's actually just been extended, but trial uh, as part of uh, national, um, national trials, government-led, to introduce e-scooters into, um, into towns and cities across the UK. We're in 17 towns and cities. We've seen phenomenal uptake, so over 6 million rides and over 39% of those rides replacing car trips, which accounts for about 1.2 thousand tons of carbon saved from people not taking car trips and instead using e-scooters. But fundamentally, we, we need to kind of hammer home, not just as a, as a commercial company, but as a, as, a, as a group of transport evangelists and you know, cl climate change supporters, the need to change the way that we move around cities. 27% um, of our carbon emissions are from, in the UK are from transport, and about two-thirds of that 29% are from road travel. Fundamentally, if we, we, need to, we, we need to pick our battles and people commercially and private sectors need to pick the battles that they're going to they're gonna fight in. And the battle we're fighting is reducing that number uh, of carbon emissions from road travel. Um, and there's such huge opportunity. 60% of, 
of trips in the UK are between one and two miles within cars. How crazy is that, that you're coming down, you're traveling one or two miles, and you're in a two-ton lump of metal, causing congestion, making our cities crowded, and obviously uh, emitting carbon at the same time. So I guess the opportunity is huge. It requires, to your question, real collaboration between government and investment in things like infrastructure and legislation change. Commercial players coming in and, and uh, working very closely with our councils and with our uh, government counterparts to make this part of the transport ecosystem. Um, and ultimately, um, you know, we're on a journey, but I think there's a, there's a long way to go. We're on a journey. I like <laughs> it. Um, okay, well, that was um, a, a, a very um, passionate um, uh, sell of, of um, e-scooters. and But also, I like the way that you link it into the climate and nature crisis you know it is and and this is what I find super interesting because I think Dan you taught I'm a bit older than you even so we've seen quite a lot of change haven't we so you know you mentioned that not that long ago people were selling cigarettes that were good for athletes you know the best cigarette was good for athletes and um, we've come all this way and now we are framing stuff within the climate and nature crisis which I'd like to come back to the point that I would like to pick up with um, with you Emma is about communicating and socialising the findings of the research, the project that you've done with Hetty. So we hear Jack saying, you just got to make it super good and easy and the thing, and then you'll have everyone doing it. But repair is hard. I mean, even Jack's nine-year-old trousers, he said they've got holes in because he hasn't darned them. If he's not doing it, how are we going to get people to do it? Yeah, well, I think this is the, the tricky thing. And, I, you know, again, I don't pretend to know all the answers, but... I think, you know, generally humans are you know, narrative beings, so we respond well to stories, but not so much to data. But without the data, without the research, you know, those stories can become confusing, misleading. Um, you know, we end up living in that post-truth world that we're all so kind of used to and relatively numb to now. So I think that taking research and, and the data, the work that, that, you know, like Hetty does and communicating that in a creative way, um, you know, interpreting it into a way that people can engage with and making it accessible, you know, is really important. And there are so many ways of doing that through, you know, film and photography or writing. Um, and that's, you know, part of, of my job. What I'm interested in is not just kind of communicating product and, and selling and pushing, um, you know, consumerism, um, it, it's got to have more to it than that. You know, there has to be the, the research and the data behind it to showcase how we can make change, which is, is a benefit to everybody. Are you trying to make people feel? What are you trying to do when you're... Yeah, I, I think, well, it, it's like that emotional reaction, right? But yeah. you have to have the rational side of it as well. So research and, um, you know, uh, all of that kind of absorbing as much information and learning as much as you can about whatever it is you're passionate about is, is super important. And then it's up to the, the creatives to, to communicate those ideas to the world. Okay, Dan? As, as, a, as a brand consultant, it, we come up against this quite, quite a lot with the different brands that we work with. And the, the thing about data is that it's historical. You know, it's, a... it's historical or, or it's based on the present. You know, so a lot of decisions are made on either historical data or you know, what I would refer to as assumption you know, we know this, we've worked in this industry for years, this sustainability campaign will, will never work. Well, why, why will it never work? Because we tried it 10 years ago and, you know, it fell flat on its face and the, the world is changing, you know, never more so than sort of the, the, 
you know, all the societal changes that we've got during lockdown and, and the whole post-COVID thing. And the danger is that a lot of brands will, will, will look back or look at the situation now and the assumptions they make and make decisions based on that. But the future is unwritten. And just because things haven't worked in the past or just because um, society reacted in, in, in a certain way, you know, we are changing really, really fast now. And the, the naysayers and, and the negative side of things will say, well, this didn't work and that didn't work. But that does not mean that, that it won't work moving forward. And I think all change brings opportunity. And, and right now there's, there's a lot of opportunity and a lot, a lot of change. I think that's super interesting because I think anyone that's worked around sustainability in marketing, for example, um, will be aware of some of the really shocking examples or the, or the, oh my God, do you remember that was so bad? I mean, you, you, may, you may have some. So the one that I'm thinking of was Tetra Pak many, many years ago came out with, and they were very quick to move. I mean, they were talking about deforestation and products um, years before other people even mentioned it. And they brought some advertising out, TV advertising, showing the world on fire because we were cutting down the forests. And everyone went, oh my God, that's so depressing. That's terrible. And then there was another car company that came out with an EV with a, um, uh, a whole campaign for a small electric vehicle that lacked all of the um, stereotypical things of car advertising. So it wasn't about sex and it wasn't for men, essentially. And everyone went, God, what sort of man would drive that car? So these are things that for years, everyone said, don't remember that car advert. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And now I think... I'd quite like to look at that car advert and maybe now's the time to look at some of that imaging. So I think that's so interesting, interesting what you say. Do you have any examples of things? And you can have a moment to think about it if you want. Yeah, you, you are putting me on the spot. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think yeah, these brands aren't perfect, but, but back in the day, uh, you know, in the late 70s, people like Anita Roddick and The Body Shop, they were doing very, very purpose-driven um, you know, you call it marketing, but it's not. It's 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 a business model. They, you know, um, you know, the whole thing about why statements and Simon Sinek is very overdone now. But you know, brands like that, they, they were clearly stating that they're against animal testing, clearly stating they're against ch- child labour, empowering women. Whilst you know, if you look at the other brands within the cosmetics industry, it was very sort of heroin chic, you know, all interchangeable, very elitist. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about sustainability empowering women, accessibility. And um, again, I refer to this, this thing I call brand transcendence. That's not just a marketing thing, because if you can define your values and you can articulate your values and say, not only is this what we stand for, but this is what we stand against, then, then, then that's going to help every part of your company. It's going to define your HR, because some people are going to say, I don't want to work for them. They're a bunch of hippies. And other people are going to say, I do want to work for them. I'm going to move countries. I'm going to take a lesser pay cut. It's not about where my desk is in the office or my job title. And, and even when they work for you, they're going to work harder. They're going to stay longer. So it's, it's smart HR. It's going to um, influence your, your new product development, your packaging. You know, they're the first guys to come up with refillable bottles. They can't use the same suppliers that everyone else uses. So it's a more difficult way to do business, but it's a more real way to do business. And I think, you know, um, that's not a perfect company, you know. And a, a lot of these companies, I was, I was speaking, uh, having breakfast with some founders who are here, 
And, you know, I think the expression we had is, is no good deed goes unpunished. And it, it really is a little bit like that. If you're trying to innovate, I interviewed someone recently and he said, he was German and I'm not sure how well it translates, but he said the innovator has got uh, bullets in their front and, and arrows in their back. And it's a little bit like that because if you're trying to do something that other people haven't done, you're going to make mistakes and things aren't going to work and it's not going to pan out maybe quite sustainable, but it does need those people who are, are willing to take risks and whilst there was very few companies sort of back in the 70s, I feel there are quite a few companies now, many of the founders are here at this conference, yeah. who are taking risks and getting things and getting, getting things wrong and right. But I'd rather be one of those people who does things and is yeah. criticised rather than one of the people who does nothing and just criticises yeah. others. Yeah, it's painful. And I think also what you're describing is that you have to, you can't just bolt onto the existing supply chain. And, you know, Anita was like, let's just revolutionise it and, you know, let's also make it inclusive and, and look at equality in the global south and stuff like that. But when you come to a lot of fast fashion stuff and we've got a greenwash panel li- later on, it's just things trying to bolt, bolt onto a, a, a disgusting, fragmented a supply chain, in my opinion. Jack, do you have um, bullets in your front and arrows in your back? Is this a painful process for you? As Dan was speaking, I was uh, feeling... You were crying. I was feeling kind of solidarity with his words. And I'm sure I've got some, uh, some of my colleagues here today who definitely have some war wounds. But something we, we speak about a lot as a team and as a company is exactly as Dan says, if you are genuinely trying to pioneer a new way of doing things, that requires innovation and that means you're going to upset people along the way. The incumbents, whether that's in business, in government or otherwise, have no incentive to change. The, the, the status quo works for those incumbents. Um, and, and for them to, 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 to innovate means that they will have a period of time where they're not doing as well as they were um, in, in, in the as environment. So absolutely, um, from voice experience as, as an e-scooter operator, but, but any innovative company that's trying to disrupt, um, it, it's difficult. Uh, you're constantly fighting against essentially lobby groups, whether that's formal or informal, uh, who don't want change. And I think in our in our specific example, quite clearly, the car lobby is an extremely powerful lobby. Uh, whether that's commercial operators, whether that's you know everyday citizens who don't want change because it's more convenient, and so it can be difficult to to paint the vision of what we want our our towns, cities, and ultimately transport networks to look like, and it requires genuine inv- investment uh, and genuine consumer change. Um, but but as I say, that that's about imagination. That's about the people delivering those solutions having resilience, and ultimately, it's about making it as attractive as possible to, to consumers because that's when the status quo players think, wait a minute, there's something in this for us here. We have to change because the pragmatist in me, I'm afraid, says that unless that happens, change doesn't happen. Yeah. The incumbents do not change unless the consumers tell them to change. So we need to create these products and services that consumers want that make the big car manufacturers say, wait a minute, and governments say, wait a minute, we need to change the way we move. And, and it's the same, same with fashion, it's the same with any pioneering thing. It can't be a bolt-on, as mm. you guys have alluded to. It has to be mm. genuine change from within. Mm. Okay, who do you think does this best? All of the, these kind of ideas that we're talking about, do you, have you seen anything? Have you seen any campaign or have you seen a product? Have you, is there anything that really inspires you? 
Patagonia, uh, you know, a, a, an obvious answer, I think, for um, everyone in this room has probably seen what they've done with the Don't Buy This Jacket campaign. But the fact that they're not afraid to wade in and get involved with, you know, political, social, environmental problems is, is really inspiring. And it's about, you know, creating that community and supporting community. Um, so, yeah, Patagonia, I also... I really like the word, uh, the work of an agency, uh, David, um, who, a global agency, they worked on the um, Moldy Burger campaign that Burger King did a few years ago. I don't know if anyone's seen that, but they were, Burger King basically taken about 100 uh, preservatives, added preservatives out of um, their food. And they wanted to obviously talk about this. And they basically produced imagery of um, a burger which had no added preservatives and they let it basically go grow mold over the course of like a few days and, and then they basically did this big billboard advertising campaign of a horrible moldy moldy burger um, and it was you know had the slogan of you know the joy of no added preservatives or something like that and that so that kind of imagery that stops and makes you think um, and sticks in your mind and then potentially makes you go and do a bit more research and find out a bit more about what it's all about is yeah, is really inspiring. I mean, I'm, I'm a creative. I'm, like, you know, inspired by, mostly by visuals, whether that's film or photography. So that's how it kind of captures my imagination and gets me interested in, in certain things. Yeah, those are, those are two very good examples. Hetty, what about you? If there's any way you think, wow, they've translated that data well. I think one thing that's really important to me is accessible data. I think that there is great power in academic research and it's it's the basis of what everything I do is comes from but I also think that when you can take that and make it accessible so anyone could come and read and understand and learn I think that's that's really important and we're seeing that so much more especially within the outdoor industry we've got for example like Sustrans cycling network more and more we're seeing we're learning as well as finding out about a brand and I really like that I think that's that empowers everyone um, because if we're going to have change, it needs to, as many piece, people as possible need to be on board, whatever angle you're coming from. And if we don't make information accessible, how is everyone going to understand it if we're always behind very complex phrases and words? Um, Dan, is now the time for activist brands? I guess my answer may be a little controversial to, to some of you. Um, the younger more idealist Dan never would have said this, but now the more uh, realist Dan who runs a few businesses has a different perspective on life. I've, I've been involved with so many brands who put, you know, ideals and activism at, at the forefront and they're not here. So they're not doing anything for anyone. Um, you know, they had all these great intentions, but they, they put that secondary to running a business and you mean the business is no longer going? Not the, those not businesses attending. are no longer going, so they're not they're not activating anything, and they, they don't exist anymore. And it's important to make a profit as a business, because profit is oxygen, and it's kind of a it's a dirty word, you know, sometimes. But actually, if you're a realist and you run a business, you need to be able to pay your wages and your and your and your rent and and all those kind of things. So I think yes. There is never a better time for having a purpose for a brand. People, you know, um, increasingly every year choose purpose over product, especially the millennials and, and the gen, 
the Gen Zs. But what I, what I would say is don't overextend yourself. You know, Patagonia are a very large company. They've been around for a very long time. They have huge resources to do multiple things. So I think I, I would advise do less more. You know, choose the things that, that are really, really important to you, that, that are authentic to, to yourselves, and just do those things really, really well so that you can get traction and, and get resonance on those things and then stand behind them instead of spreading yourselves too thin and, and concentrate on the business to make sure that you're still around in a few years' time uh, in order to do bigger things. Okay, Emma? Yeah, I mean, I, I really agree with that. So, you know, we, Cold House is the opposite to Patagonia in terms of scale. We're only like a small independent business with, um, you know, five permanent members of staff. Um, but we are members of 1% for the planet. So we donate 1% of our annual turnover um, every year to a charity called Moors for the Future, who are based in the valley over from us in the Peak District. Um, and they're working to restore the peatlands um, and the sphagnum moss um, in the Pennines and the Peak District, um, which is you know, one of the UK's biggest carbon sinks. So we've chosen a charity who are working um, you know, to protect nature and restore the environment that's right on our doorstep, that's relevant to us as a business. You know, we all go out and work and play in the Peak District. And it's a way of us learning as a business and as individuals about this important um, initiative and able to share it with others like friends and family and then also you know it helps to hopefully encourage businesses to work with us um you know by by working with us and um creating a campaign with us you know that money essentially is then going to a good cause so it's small but significant and i think keeping it relevant to um you know something that's close to home is really important as well Okay, I want to say massive thank you to Jack, to Dan, to Emma and Hetty. Thank you so much. That's the first panel. Give them a round of applause. We hope that conversation's inspired you and given you some proper, actionable insight. Please look out for the next episode. And if you haven't signed up for the film versions, please visit the Blue Earth website at blueearthsummit.com. Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.